it was like, well, but the economy does tend towards full employment. I said, well, just because it's at full employment now and then doesn't mean it tends to go towards that. For it to tend to go to full employment, you have to argue that the conditions of less than full employment create full employment, somehow induce full employment. The example I use in class is, you know, those the, the, those punching bags you get for kids that are, they're, that are blow up and you put sand in the bottom? Mm-hmm. Um, whenever it's not standing up straight, the fact that it's on its side has created conditions that are going to make it straighten itself again. All right. So mm. that's what a tendency towards full employment means. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Part three in a six-part series with Texas Christian University economics professor and cowboy economist John Harvey. The first three parts are hosted by me, the final three by MMT researcher, Texas lawyer, and my previous guest, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and John talk about how MMT can apply to nations outside the U.S. using Russia as an example and also some of the core theoretical and ideological differences between MMTers and mainstream economists, focusing on a recent critique of MMT by Drew Metz and Feister. You can hear my own interview with Jonathan in episodes 106 and 107. Today in part three, John and I finish our conversation about his chapter in the upcoming book called Modern Monetary Theory, Key Insights, Leading Thinkers. The book will be published by the UK-based Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, or GIMS. It's edited by L. Randall Ray and GIMS and is scheduled for a January 2023 release. John is one of 15 authors. His chapter is called Modern Monetary Theory, the UK, and Pound Sterling. It addresses the following criticism of MMT, and this is a quote from the chapter. NMT-inspired policies will cause high rates of price inflation, which will, in turn, lower the international value of a domestic currency, perhaps catastrophically. This conversation discusses the three major false assumptions underlying this criticism. We end on two mostly unrelated topics. The first is how, when it comes to those we directly interact with on a day-to-day basis, Mainstream economic theory is not, in fact, of massive conspiracy. Therefore, we should almost always err on the side of being diplomats instead of assassins, or as I like to say it, rage against the system, be kind to individuals. Most who agree with mainstream theory genuinely believe it to be accurate. As I mentioned, I do believe it takes a lot of shutting out of dissenting views and those that hold those dissenting views 
in order to enable this true belief. However, after thinking about it, I realize that filtering always occurs at the level above, starting with those who rank the economic journals and universities. Another important example relevant to my own experience are those who moderate extremely large social media discussion groups who prevent dissenting thought from ever appearing in the first place. The final topic is the good and bad of math and economics. Basically, there's nothing wrong with math and economics, just as long as there's nothing wrong with any tool. All that matters is how you use it. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler, part one of this conversation with John Harvey, and my next interview, which is with Dirk Entz. Patrons also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, let's get right back to my conversation with John Harvey. Enjoy. I have. I went over this in in my Australia talk. Um, I I got this. It's downstairs right now. But I have this wonderful neoclassical book on exchange rate theory, and I used to use it before I'd written all my stuff on exchange rates. It was the only thing I had. I would cover this, you know, a neoclassical exchange rate book, and it's a very, very well written and a very honest book. And the first thing that strikes you is that it isn't one exchange rate theory. It's like six because they can't make up their mind which ones work, right? Chapter it, two. Yeah. And it, it's, it's yeah, exactly. In, in my book, it ends up being chapter two. And, and I saw, yeah, I, I pulled a lot of that out of, out of this wonderful textbook. And that one, one of the things that makes it wonderful is at the end of every chapter, he stops and says, uh, Lawrence Copeland is the author, he stops and says, okay, let's look at how this has you know, performed empirically. And at the end of every chapter, to summarize, he says, not well. <laughs> and so, I, I don't know, when, when I was given the talk for the Australian Treasury Department and then for the Australian MMT group, I, I kept emphasizing, imagine the student who is working through this highly technical book, all excited about learning, you know, learning about uh, exchange rates, and at the end of every chapter, you get this, well, it would have been nice if it worked, wouldn't it? In fact, I, in fact, I have the quote right here, and I'm, I'm giving away one of my slides from the Levy Institute. This is from the Lawrence Copeland book, 2008 edition, page 71. Uh, and this is, we can summarize the evidence by saying that on the face of it, there appears to be no obvious tendency towards purchasing power parity. So great. So I, I've read this chapter, and there's next to no support for it. Uh, and also uh, same same book page 78 we have seen that there are and listen to this this is fascinating we have seen that there are persuasive reasons for supposing that in principle at least purchasing power parity ought to be a good approximation of the truth let me 
the hell does that mean? We have seen that there are persuasive reasons, if you ignore 90% of the market, that purchasing power parity ought to be a good approximation of the truth. His next sentence is, unfortunately, however, the facts would appear to provide little support in the short run, and the evidence on the long run is at best mildly supportive. So this is their core theory. Of all these six exchange rate theories they go through, they, they all boil down to, in the end, trade flows. Trade flows are what determine exchange rates. Uh, certainly, capital flows are bigger than trade flows, but um, capital flows are just there to finance the trade flows, is their, is their idea, or their white noise, right? And so by their own admission, they don't work very well. And, and, and to me, the answer why is very simple. And that is, uh, as, as you have pointed out, that the actual currency market in, in 2018, the World Trade Organization estimated that world trade was $25.3 trillion, all right? So, so all of the goods and services bought and sold across the planet were $25.3 trillion. Um, currency market activity was $1,650 trillion. So that's 25 versus $1,650 trillion. So what the hell was all that money doing? It, that's 1.5% of all the currency trade. Now, the people counter-arguing will, will, will quite appropriately say, yes, but every trade transaction might generate a covering transaction of some sort, you know, as, as people are trying to, you know, there may be several uh, exchange rate transactions per um, import or export. Okay, let's multiply it by 10. <laughs> uh, 10 seems ridiculous, but that only brings us to 15%. Uh, of, of, of all trade of all currency activity has to do with trade so that's why it's a they, they've struggled with this for years it's like they can't figure out what they they, they can't give up on it yeah i don't know that that's enough on on purchasing power parity well then let me just ask all right so so two two things one is just simply an observation which is like they seem to want to pretend that it's empirical when it's obviously not like they they want the legitimacy of so-called of of empiricism that it actually applies to the real world but i guess that's just you know but please don't look too closely i mean i guess that that's basically i, I think mean, it's stranger than that because if you look at their literature on pursing power parity time after time after time they will say it doesn't work but let's still imagine that it does let's look one more time just to make sure yeah i mean okay. and and that's like he said uh, in the book. We have seen that there are you know compelling reasons to believe that it ought to be a good approximation, uh, but it's not. But let's still make it the foundation of everything because Jesus, it just has to be. So, when you've got your mind made up before you start about the way the world works, yeah, and, and we all do that to some extent. I don't want to just blame them for this. It's hard to see contrary evidence. And really take it into account. And yet they themselves have generated so much contrary evidence that they openly admit, yeah, it doesn't work real well. But anyway, let's get started with the lecture today. You know, you know it, what this it, reminds it, me of? It, it reminds me of the tobacco industry, of the asbestos industry, of the, of, uh, the fossil fuel industry. We must continue analyzing. Even though we already know the answer because we've asked it a million times. But, but you know what I mean? Per, per, it, it's, it's we must, you know, we must keep analyzing how can we be sure. 
but meanwhile they're behind the scenes profiting off of <laughs> right i mean that's 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 what it revokes in me anyway um okay so so one last thing regarding purchasing and obviously it's nonsense so i don't think we should spend too much time on it but but by the way that's, really... ex- that's exactly what um actual currency dealers call it they call there was a really nice study by a neoclassical a couple of neoclassical economists uh, interviewing uh, or, or surveying actual currency dealers, and they asked them among other things, "What do you think of it? Uh, what do you think of purchasing power parity?" And again, to give away a slide uh, from the <laughs> Levy Institute uh, talk, they say that where is it here? What down here? I haven't practiced the talk yet. I need to do that to make sure I know how how long it takes. Um, here it is that it is no more than academic jargon by a large majority. This is a quote from the paper by a large majority, 63% respond that purchasing power parity is quote, merely academic jargon, unquote. And Mm -hmm. furthermore, again, a quote from the paper uh, by these two neoclassical economists, the disdain the traders held for purchasing power parity as a useful business concept is reflected in the numbers in figure 11 B a dollar overvaluation indicated by purchasing power parity would induce no action on the part of 81% of the traders. In other words, if you calculated purchasing power parity for the U.S. and Canada and discovered that, whoa, uh, the Canadian dollar is, is way overvalued, we should be selling it. You know, we should be shorting it. 81% of people would ignore it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 81% of people who are in that market would ignore it. So the, the evidence is overwhelming. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, I, this is a final follow-up question regarding purchasing power parity, but it's obviously fantasy, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But but I am fascinated by this idea that prices are the same for major products are the same price the world over, setting aside exchange rates. And it, that implies that there's some kind of anchor. And what in the world would that anchor be? And I think the answer is there is none. But can can you address that? Part yeah, of it, yeah, that- yeah. To be fair to them, and, and you know, it's always good to try to do that because we'd like that they they did that for us now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, to be fair to them, uh, there's the law of one price, which says that every single individual good or service should be the same price the world over, and they say we know that doesn't hold. All right. Then there's purchasing power parity, the way I've been explaining it so far, and we know that doesn't hold. Um, but they say, well. Maybe at least the relative inflation rates in each country should be reflected in the currency price. In other words, now we don't need an anchor anymore. Now all we're saying is that if the price of the average good or service in the UK goes up by 5% in in pounds over a given year, and uh, that that same set of goods and services goes up by 1% in the US, then we should expect the pound to depreciate because their inflation is higher. So they really compare inflation rates, which still doesn't work, by the way. All the research that I was talking about that doesn't work was on inflation rates. It wasn't even on the, the, the much more difficult question of, are those goods the same price the world over? They, they don't even try that one anymore. Uh, they just mm-hmm. say, well, do they change in a way that is reflected in the exchange rate? If one country has higher inflation than the other, then is the country with a higher inflation, does their currency depreciate? No, it doesn't, unless there's hyperinflation, in which case I would argue that's really the financial market that's taking over and you know dumping their assets. But so to be fair to them, we don't need an anchor if we use what they actually test, but then what they actually test also doesn't work. <laughs> okay. 
All right. So, so this next topic is something that you wanted to bring up, and you know, I can understand why. So it, it's basically the idea that I and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm substantially guilty of this myself. But it's basically, you know, that neoclassical economics is a massive conspiracy, and and I think I think it's, you know, I, I've read, I just recently read um, the Great Transformation, which whoa, oh yeah, oh my goodness, yeah, and uh, and democracy in chains. And I haven't read it, but there's also Demo- uh, Disaster Capitalism by Naomi Klein. And that kind of implies that mm, there kind of is a conspiracy. But I think it's fair to say that that conspiracy is way higher than the level of people that we engage with. And I think that's kind of your point is that, you know, we're talking with good faith people, even though they believe wrong things. And that, you you know, you use the great, you know, uh, what uh, analogy yeah. or whatever you call it of, of – being ambassadors as opposed to assassins will get us farther as a strategy for, you know, spreading the real theories of exchange rate and MMT and whatever. So, um, so you know, please yeah. say, say what you want to say regarding that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, uh, I've seen it a lot, you know, uh, on Facebook MMT groups and that, um, that, as you say, neoclassicism is viewed as a big conspiracy theory. They all know darn well it's not really true, uh, but they have an agenda. Right? Um, and I will say first, I would argue that neoclassicism ended up at the top of the heap because of the Cold War. Uh, John Harvey talks about this in his Contending Perspectives book, in the chapter on neoclassicism and, and why, it, you know, why it came to dominate. And there were, there were a couple of reasons. One was that the economics discipline took a hit. Uh, during the Great Depression, as it should have. And it's kind of people decided, well, what the hell are, are we paying these people for when they can't figure out what's going on? Now, there were people who were figuring out what was going on, but nevertheless, there was still a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, um, they lost some respect. Then we hit the full employment. But, you know, uh, during World War II, we're basically at full employment. And a lot of the lessons from neoclassicism are useful under conditions of full employment, um, you know, because they're assuming we're there anyway. So it's all about trade-offs. If you want more of this, you have to have less of that, which oh, was quite appropriate, you know, important during world. So they kind of gained some um, uh, so, some uh, respect there. But I think what really killed all the rest of the schools of thought, and this is the in the second edition of the Contending Perspectives book, is something I really wanted to to emphasize, was the Cold War. I, I found some congressional records where they were talking about how many communists they were able to get out of the teaching profession, including a kindergarten teacher. I mean, they were, they were dragging kindergarten teachers in front of them. Okay. Professors. All right. Fair enough. You know, but um, kindergarten teachers, I guess they thought she was teaching Marxism. Uh, But so this really pounded every left leaning, every school of thought that didn't say the market was perfect. Right. Uh, So this, this totally evokes Fredley's. uh, Oh, is that right? History yeah, of Heterodox yeah. Economics book. Yeah. Discrimination. Um, oh, Fred was a nice man. But anyway, uh, and he was such a powerful personality. He uh, gets so much uh, – he was he was worth more than one person to our movement. Um, but his, his book, History of Heterodox Economics, was, was just what you were saying. It's it's discrimination against non-neoclassical right, whatever, mainstream right, schools. Right, right. It was very real. It was very real. Um, so you know the neoclassicals who were already leaning this way – either, you know, got real quiet. I read once that one of the reasons why we started this 
whole positive economics versus normative economics, which had been there all along, but positive meaning value-free. I'm not making any judgments. Normative meaning uh, I'm making a judgment of whether this is good or bad. Neoclassical economists started saying, yeah, I'm doing positive economics. Uh, I'm not making a value judgment here because I don't want to get dragged in front of a uh, committee somewhere uh, mm. for uh, un-American activities. Which so, is, yeah. is the ahead. views of those people who are going to drag them in front of that committee. My yeah, not but, having my not having views is nothing more than the views of those who are going to be judging them in front of that committee. Very possibly. And, and this gets into where, you know, what, what I wanted to mention today in particular is that, okay, so, so that's where I think it came from. And certainly, certainly those at the top are served by, um, by a certain version of neoclassical economics. Actually, if you're very strict with neoclassical economics, it says that businesses should not be very powerful at all. Uh, it says that the consumer should really be the one in charge. But, you know, it, it, you get a, a Friedman version thereof, and all of a sudden it doesn't matter what business does, it's okay. Because he's going to assume that it's really the consumer's doing it when it's not true. But the, the big thing I wanted to point out was there may well be a conspiracy way up the top, but your average neoclassical economist really believes this stuff. And I know more neoclassical economists, obviously, than I know non-neoclassicals. And... The majority of neoclassical economists are liberals. They may be Joe Biden liberals and not, you know, Bernie Sanders liberals, but they're liberals. Um, and there's there's data to support this. Uh, the, the article I shared with you, Jeff, said that in this survey, the ratio of of econ of professional economists who voted Democrat versus Republican was two and a half to one. All right, so more than more than two to one. Everybody in my department who was a neoclassical is also left leaning. All right. So they just believe it. And now, now think about this. You, you start grad school and you're left leaning. Let's say, I'm sorry, in, in economics and you're left leaning. All right. Well, 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 many of the left leaning ones are going to just quit. Right. The only ones we're left with are the ones who were willing to think to themselves. Yeah, that does make some sense because uh, they've all self-selected to get to that point, but they've all decided that it made sense. Um, and in conversations, okay, so I, I wrote an article on post-Keynesian economics for the American Economist, which is a neoclassical journal, many years ago. Well, not many, maybe about five or six. And I, 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 the editor, I knew the editor, and he said, would you mind writing an article about post-Keynesian economics for neoclassicals so in a way they can understand us? So it's a great idea. So, and I, I, I sent it to Paul Davidson for him to have a look, and I sent it to Victoria Chick for her to have a look. Uh, who, you know, big name post-Keynesians. And then I thought, you idiot, John, you should send it to a neoclassical. So I sent it to one of my colleagues. Hmm. And he was blown away. Very left-leaning guy. He was like, well, but the economy does tend towards full employment. I said, well, just because it's at full employment now and then doesn't mean it tends to go towards that. For it to tend to go to full employment, you have to argue that the conditions of less than full employment create full employment, somehow induce full employment. The example I use in class is, you know, those the, the, those punching bags you get for kids that are, that are, that are blow up and you put sand in the bottom? Mm -hmm. um, whenever it's not standing up straight, the fact that it's on its side has created conditions that are going to make it straighten itself again. All right. So mm. that's what a tendency towards full employment means. And he's like, oh, OK, OK. And then he said, I was surprised that you put Paul Krugman and Milton Friedman in the same school of thought. I said, well, to me, they are. Because to him, these were wise, you know, he, he doesn't like Friedman, but he's okay with Krugman. And I said, well, to me, you know, are, are Catholics and Baptists the same? 
yes, if I'm a Buddhist, they look a hell of a lot alike. Um, huh. Not if I'm a Catholic or Baptist, but, you know, so he was really, and I got to tell you, he's come around quite a bit. He even forwarded an article to me the other day talking about how poorly neoclassical economics has adjusted to being able to explain the real world. So, you know, in, in his case, I could have said, you freaking idiot. <laughs> Here you are trying to uh, stand up for the capitalist and the man and so forth. But, you know, instead, he was very open to the ideas. He'd just never been exposed. And the vast majority, vast majority of neoclassicals have simply never been exposed to anything other than neoclassicism. Now, um, I think a movement needs multiple avenues of attack. All right. So uh, I'm not saying that, you know, people shouldn't be laying into Krugman. Because God almighty, Krugman, he says some really crazy stuff. But anyway, sure, uh, Larry Summers, sure, uh, 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 Rogoff, sure. But and, and probably the average person that's following MMT on Facebook or whatever isn't going to run in to the colleagues that I run into who are, you know, just everyday economists, nor would they be armed in a way that would be able to, to convince them otherwise. But I do think that there is a role for us as ambassadors and as assassins. We need both to convert people. However, having said all that, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I've said this to you before. I know I've said it in a blog somewhere. I was at one of Jamie Galbraith's conferences that he, he used to put together every two years. He stopped doing it now, but they were, they were fantastic, uh, especially the part afterwards where everyone drank beer. And so <laughs> we're out at some barbecue place in Austin, Texas. And I said to him, well, you know, what, do you, what, are, what are our chances uh, in terms of, you know, fixing economics? And, and without hesitation, oh, there's no chance. There's no way we can fix economics. It's gone. We just write it off. Uh, and so well, what are we going to do? He said, well, what we're doing right now, we're talking to policymakers. You know, screw economics. It's gone. Uh, we're talking to policymakers. And what are our odds? He said, oh, not very good. He said, but, you know, what else are we going to do? You, you've got to do the right thing. You've got to be able to look back and say that I was on the good guy's side. Um, and so, yeah, we're probably going to lose. But, you know, can you think of anybody that's a, that's a bigger fighter than, than Jimmy Galbraith? And yet he's thinking to himself, we're probably not going to be able to pull this off. But what else am I going to do with my life? There's no alternative. What, what alternative is there? Yeah, yeah. What, what can you do other than the right thing? Um, so, and I was going to mention something earlier about you know, no, these economists who are fairly left-leaning but just can't drop the theories they were taught. I, I used to quote the heck out of a guy named Hans Visser, really nice man, a, a, a Dutch economist, mainstream. And he had a quote about exchange rate theory where he said that, you know, well, and it could be that exchange rates are driven by, you know, financial capital flows and, and you know, in, in an uncertain world and so forth. But that leads us to Keynes's gloomy view. OK. Yeah, let's go there then. But oh, he didn't the truth is gloomy. Yes. The yes. truth is gloomy. So and I don't know. So it's bad yes. and therefore it has to be wrong. And, and yet he's a left-leaning guy. What the hell's going on? You know, mm. he just can't let go of the theory. So for, for you know, maybe it's, as, as Gombra says, maybe it's just too late to do anything. But at least in my own department, you know, I, I'm going to do a presentation to my department next semester on what I teach in macro because they don't know. They have no idea. Um, they don't right. know what the alternative is. Right, right. Okay, great, great, great. All right, so I have a few just comments. You don't have to respond. Uh, mm. I, I have a few thoughts about this. And, and – Basically, rage against the system, be kind to individuals. I mean, yeah, you know, so the, the, that's that's a very good way of wording it. 
Yeah, you're. I think that's my way of saying you're assassins versus or, or uh, right ambassador versus assassins. Yeah. Um, okay, so I have a few thoughts about that, and I, I just you know I can just say them, and that is these well-intentioned people that genuinely believe these theories. I, I really do. Th- I mean, yes, we have to we have to treat them the way that we expect to be treated. If we, if we, you know, anticipate or not anticipate, if we assume a, a conspiracy on their part or whatever, you know, that's exactly what we're, what we experience all the time as MMTers with yeah. horrible critiques. So yeah. if we're going to do the same thing to them as they do to us, you know, how can we not expect that in return? So that's, that's first, but it, there's a lot of micro terrible things and from I think it's fair to say that these genuinely, you know, you you just said it. I it's uh, uh, I forget you said something. You said something about the person that you know that it, it always tends to full employment. Like he never thought of. He just simply never thought of it before. Oh yeah. It takes a lot of shutting out. Yeah. To to not think of that before. It takes oh, a I'll lot of. It takes a lot of active shutting out of choosing to ignore something to not realize until you're 60 years old or whatever that, Oh, I just never thought of that before. If I may interject one more thing he had never thought about the first time I was department chair, I was observing his, his, his intermediate macro class. He's a macro guy like me. And he talked about what he called the golden rule of investment, which I guess is, is some theory in neoclassicism where you want, and the assumption is that what people save is what gets invested that, you know, we need people to save more, because that'll drive down interest rates and then people and then firms will invest more. And I, you know, it was a very good lecture. He's, he's a very good teacher. And I, and I said to him afterwards, and I didn't write this in my formal, you know, sort of write up, but I said, why would firms invest more if consumers are saving more? And he said, I don't know. I never thought about that. <laughs> so there he, you go. He, so, so he said to you in response to your chapter, your post Keynesian chapter in a uh, neoclassical journal, I guess. They said, "I just never been exposed to this." How, how old was this guy at the time? Sixty years old, whatever it was. How much? 30, 35. Okay, well, still thirty-five, yeah. three and a half decade. How much conscious decisions did he make to not look at that kind of information, or to uh, be to be have it, the to yeah. have the shiny ball of neoclassical information? Keep looking at us. Keep looking at us. Keep looking at us. Which you know, and even MSNBC. Of, of hiding basically news of by and for the rich, of not being news of poor people, of not going out and seeing the suffering of poor people, of keeping them distracted, keeping them focused on, you know, not yeah. the information that will inform them. So it's like, yeah, they genuinely believe it. And even those on top, they genuinely believe these things. But how much active shutting out and sidelining of I, important critical information is there to get to that point I where it truly is think. genuine? I honestly don't think there's that much. And let me give you an example here. I went to graduate school uh, at the place where it was the headquarters, not not right away, but but later, uh, I guess my two or three years in, of the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics, because Paul Davidson was there. And it was the headquarters of the Journal of Economic Issues the whole time I was there, the the main institutionalist journal. You know where I learned about all other schools of thought? On my freaking own. I didn't learn it from them. So in a program that had the top two journals that I ever want to publish in, Journal of Economic Issues and Journal of Post-Keynes Economics, I learned about Post-Keynes Economics because somebody left a book on my desk one day and I happened to find it. So 
I didn't have to actively ignore anything because it wasn't there to be ignored. Now, you're saying about things like poverty and so forth. Well, neoclassicals think they have answers to that. And they, they are genuinely concerned about poverty, but they're operating with a crappy model. Um, right, but- which is exactly – if you feed someone – like the, uh, I'm sure that there's very genuine people at the CBO. I'm sure there's very, very caring, genuine people, but they're fed terrible data and given terrible tools. So no matter how much good faith they work with, they're going to do horrible stuff. It's like being a, it's like being a doctor in you know, the year 1300. The underlying – you want to help people, but your underlying theory is wrong. <laughs> so, and I think or a doctor from today going back to 1300 knowing what to do, but he doesn't have the resources to actually do it. Well, or, or, you know, because see, to me, I keep thinking they're never exposed to these things in the first place. So as far as they know, as far as these neoclassicals know, this is the state of the art. Just as just as a doctor in the year 1600 is thinking, well, this is all there is to know. This right. is the state of the art. So I'm going to use what I understand about the four, you know, what the four humors or whatever. I'm going to be, you know, a. Uh, uh, bleeding some people today uh, and, and so forth and, and boy, leeches. Well, where are the leeches uh, and so I really think that it's not even that they're actively ignoring is that they they believe truly because they have never seen any alternatives this is why it is so important to me that we have that continuing perspectives class our students know alternatives that my own faculty colleagues don't know right right we have to we, the ones that don't teach right, that. Right. now um, with MMT and perhaps this is this is part of the reason that people view it as a conspiracy. It's more out there than any other school of thought has been since World War II. Before World War II, institutionalism was actually quite popular. But uh, then it According died out. According to Steve Keen, the MMT is the biggest influence since Keynes himself. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, it, it's – but it, as I said to you in an email, I don't know if that helps us or hurts us that they truly believe it. Maybe it would be easier if it were simply a conspiracy. You know, then we could expose the conspiracy and we could find we could find the email trail of them giggling to each other, you know, that <laughs> ha ha ha, I taught my students this today. Maybe so it's actually harder that they we're gonna, we're, we're gonna expose a conspiracy, expose the underlying terrible flaws of these assumptions, and then all of these millions of people are gonna have to reevaluate their lives and realize that their entire careers have been based on this. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, there's so much momentum now that it's hard to imagine them not quite honestly believing to themselves that you're bringing up astrology when I'm an astronomer. Uh, So, of course, yeah. yeah, I mean, their glasses are flawed and their whole world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kane said he thought that once somebody was past about 30, they stopped accepting new ideas. Um, It's it's not even the glasses. It's there. It's inside their brains are, 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 you know, they've been they've been wired that way now. Right. Okay. All right. So so enough about that. That's that's very interesting. And I think there's good points. All right. So the final major question, final question is math and economics. So so the reason that I want to bring this up is number one, I really don't have much I mean I'm 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 good in math, you know, from from, you know, my limited not an economics point of view, but just like I'm, yeah. I'm decent with math and in the subjects that I've done, but as far as MMT and economics is concerned, I really have zero experience. And um so your paper, I think you kind of mentioned this, but your paper for GIMS has Math. And the reason that it has math, you told me, was more that it's to appease critics who think that MMT doesn't have enough math and models as opposed to it's genuinely useful. So uh, 
you know, obviously audio is not the greatest venue for, for discussing math, but can you, and, and I don't even think these are the greatest questions, but hopefully you'll create better questions and answer those. No, instead. no, it's but, a very good question. Okay. So, so how can math actually be useful from, from the perspective of someone, you know, a kind of advanced layperson MMT or, and what, what should we look out for that that is bad? And, yeah. you know, the math in your paper, you know, you say it's kind of, I, you know, it, it's obviously it's not false. It's, it's good, but how valuable is it? You know, is there, and, and is there an example of a math that genuinely is really valuable from kind of, you know, the perspective of, of, you know, someone who wants to get into this stuff, yeah. and, you know, whatever I, I, you know, I don't yeah. exactly know what to go on, but I'm really no, interested in this, in this concept of math and economics and understanding what's bad and, you know, whatever. So, oh yeah, absolutely. No, uh, well, your opening point is, is exactly right that they said um, that we'd like you to, to, to do it something more formal, mathematical, because we want, you know, we, we want neoclassicals to be less able to simply dismiss it because to them math is, is what makes something quote unquote rigorous. But now this may be where I'm struggling with the same problem as all those neoclassicals I was just talking about. It may be that I self-selected into this and I, and it's been burned. Up. I think it's very useful. I think the mathematics are very useful. And it's funny, you know, I, I said earlier that uh, Don Elliott and I taught our first ever, the university's first ever economics of race and gender class. And this came up several times during the semester where we both said, you know, I mean, we like formal modeling. That's why we are economists. Uh, my first major was physics. Her first major was chemistry. And well, hell, Paul Davidson's was uh, some sort of a, I think chemistry, I can't remember now. Uh, so our, our brains like to build a formal model that can then be manipulated to see which part of the model is, is the, the leverage point. Which part of the model is, ah, if we do, if we change wages, oh, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example right here. All right, so first of all, the math is really handy to consider complex problems that have a number of different dimensions. The kind of math you use is important, and, I, and I'll address that in a moment, but uh, it's really handy for that because you say, you say okay, uh, let's use W for wages, and then we'll have to have, uh, you know, I think chapter three or four in Keynes' general theory is all about how he's going to measure the different variables. Uh, it's a very hard chapter. I, I understand that he was a statistician, a statistician yeah, yeah, he was a and not statistician. a economist. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, let's, let's assume that, you know, the, the wage rate is W. Uh, let's assume that the level of employment is N and so forth. And then what do I expect the market? For, for example, in, in the paper, I use Keynes' ZD diagram as the uh, cornerstone for understanding the impact of, of MMT. And it also is an excellent way of comparing the way we do deficit spending right now with a job program. Um, you can see it beautifully, how much more sense it makes. It, it's, it's, it's shorthand. Math is shorthand. Now, unfortunately, there is a temptation to, whoa, that concept's really complicated. Well, let me assume away these six things that are actually really important in the real world in order to make it mathematically feasible to, you know, make this one of the variables. Um, everyone is subject to that uh, in economics, and you're just going to be careful about what you assume away, right? Because every model is is wrong. Um, every model is 
a simplification of the real world. Just got to be careful of what you simplify. If you get horribly ahistorical results to your model, like you would if with a neoclassical model explaining the Great Depression, then your model sucks. All right, you get you you've oversimplified something. But no, I, I find it as a matter of fact. And if I may say something very unhumble, when I reread that chapter in anticipation of our talk this morning, I thought this is pretty good. <laughs> I I hadn't read it in at least a year. Um, this is not bad. And I got fired up about that new book I want to do on exchange rates, which will be several years from now before I even start it, by the models I put in here that were that were initially there just to say, okay, well, look, um, this isn't just a bunch of blog posts. We actually have some math behind this. So I find it very useful. Now, having said that, let's compare neoclassical economics with, say, Steve Keen's economics. In neoclassical economics uh, uh, modeling, they tend to use general equilibrium model, which, you know, I have three equations and three unknowns so I can solve the system. All right. It's useful for some things. Keynes' ZD diagram is a set of simultaneous equations that you solve for the current level of GDP and employment. But get this, something you cannot do in an equilibrium, general equilibrium model is accurately reflect the passage of time because a general equilibrium model is a set of simultaneous equations, right? Well, you know what simultaneous means? There's no time. Mm. So, so picture this. Picture a supply and demand diagram with a supply curve on there already, but it's got two different demand curves. Put them wherever you want, two different demand curves. Which one happened first? There's no way to answer that question because there is nothing inherent in general equilibrium modeling that tells you what happens first and what happens second. All I can tell you is where it will stop. That's all I can tell you. Now, Steve Keen, in his paper from 1995, upon which he based his analysis of the, uh, of the financial crisis, and for which he was voted online as the person who, by a large margin, who most accurately forecast the financial crisis, he's doing computer modeling. He's doing a simulation model. Now you can model a passage of time. And why is that important? Because the financial sector cannot possibly be included in a general equilibrium model because the financial sector is all about time. The financial sector is, I want to spend money that I don't have today, and I'm going to pay it back over time. I'm going to accumulate debt. I'm going to run down debt. And after the financial crisis, there were many, going back to our, something we talked about earlier, there were many mea culpas about, from the neoclassicals about, yeah, we didn't even have a financial sector in our model. So you can't really predict the financial crisis without a financial sector in your model. Um, and they can't put them in there properly because financial sectors are about the passage of time. And that's why uh, Michael Koleski years ago used a much more dynamic type of modeling Keen, he was doing computer simulation, which of course is much easier to do nowadays. And so absolutely, I find the math, and again, this may be my bias from having been a physics major first. I was attracted to the, the, the idea of, of modeling things. I, I found uh, things like sociology fascinating, but frustrating because I would get done with a book and think, okay, what did I learn? Uh, how, do I how do I formalize the things I learned about this phenomenon in a way that would allow me to then manipulate something in the model and see how that would change the outcome. So I, I, I'm a big fan of it. Keynes has a wonderful, wonderful quote on this. And maybe I'll stop talking after I find that. Let me look it up real quick. Um, let's see. Keynes, um, nature. I, 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 I found it. Okay. 
Let's see here. The object of our analysis is not to provide a machine or a method of blind manipulation which will furnish an infallible answer, but to provide ourselves with an organized and orderly method of thinking out particular problems. And after we've reached a provisional conclusion, by isolating the complicating factors one by one, we then have to go back on ourselves and allow, as well as we can, for the probable interactions of the factors amongst themselves. This is the nature of economic thinking. Any other way of applying our formal principles of thought will lead us into error. It is the great fault of symbolic pseudo-mathematical methods of formalizing a system of economic analysis that they expressly assume a strict independence among the factors involved and lose all their cogency and authority if this hypothesis is disallowed. So, for example, you hear you know, neoclassical economists, well, if we want to lower unemployment, let the wages fall. Keynes is like, yeah, and let demand fall too. Um, mm. These are th these interact with each other. So he's a great mathematician. He's building, you know, th these. Uh, although th this is mostly text, but then a lot of the stuff was back then. But he's saying, but look, you build the model to just kind of think through these issues, and you go back on yourself and imagine, okay, what if this happens instead? And we have no choice. The real world isn't, you know, uh, amenable to just putting together a model that is quote unquote right and we're done. Um, but I do find. I do find the mathematical modeling very helpful in thinking through ideas, in figuring out which of the variables seems to be in a really important leverage point to make a difference uh, in the economy. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I have a few responses, um, yeah. but, but that's really interesting. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, thinking of school teacher and both of our wives are, are, are elementary school teachers, right. fourth grade, mine, second grade, learning to read versus reading to learn. So it's, it's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's using math to achieve a larger goal, or are you just learning math right, just for right. the sake of math itself? And so the problem is not math per se. The problem is what do they use it for? What assumptions do they use? Yes. What what um, uh, what input do they? What data do they use? And whatever. So the problem is not math at all. The problem right. is is how it's used. Um, right. Okay. So actually, you 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 said something like. Like you, you enjoyed the the mathematical subjects better than you enjoyed. I forget what topic, like sociology or something. Oh, right, right. And actually, I'm learning how to play. I, I'm a I'm a trained singer. I I, I went to school for yeah. singing, but but I'm learning guitar, and I have I I struggle with strumming. Like I can I understand chords. Like if you give me yeah. like A minor, A flat minor, whatever. Like I can do it. But it doesn't feel like music to me. Strumming, like just yeah. strumming, doesn't feel like music to me. Huh. But finger picking, if you it, they yeah. have guitar tabs where it tells you specifically what to hit at every single moment. Yeah, and I and I realize the problem is is that I want to just be told what to do. I uh. I can't relax to to do the strumming to do the improvisation, yeah. and so I. Love the finger picking to be told what to do and that seems very analogous to math like it tells you what to do it, it's it's very you know in a sense it's kind of you know I, I i don't know that that feels analogous to me yeah yeah um okay and then uh oh by the way melanie was a singer as well um oh yeah we have karaoke set up downstairs uh because she loves singing so much uh, we we just went to our first karaoke like place 
last oh, night really? a, a private you buy a karaoke private karaoke room with like just yeah, a, a yeah. bunch of neighbors it was great it was great yes and see melanie well the last time we had people over uh it was their first time to come over to our house for karaoke so melanie sings first and like nobody else wants to sing now like yeah oh. that's okay <laughs> uh-huh. uh she, she's not bad it's been a long time since she's really practiced or anything but uh you know one of the most frustrating things i've discovered is that the bands i like the most I can't necessarily sing their stuff hmm. and bands. I'm not that crazy about. Eh, I'm pretty good at that song. I, <laughs> I don't really want to do moon shadow by, uh, the cat Stevens, uh, but I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> so I, 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 I struggle to find those few songs from bands. I really like that. Okay. I can do that. One, so. Oh, anyway, interesting. Yeah. I, I, I was classically trained and, and I'm, I'm not into classical and I, I definitely appreciate it and can enjoy it, but I'm not, yeah. I, I wouldn't choose that. But that taught me to be able to do other stuff. So like right. I really, I really love like James Taylor right. and Billy Joel and whatever. So, okay. Um, so a, a minor, a minor follow up that'll be my final thing, which is just simply like, okay. So if you wrote this paper ideally for the Gims paper, would any of the math, uh, you know, forgetting, ignoring critics, so the math in it is is accurate. Obviously, it's accurate. But as far as valuable, if you wrote this paper ideally. Would any of the math actually remain? I, as a matter of fact, want to incorporate what I put in this paper into the next edition of the exchange rate book. Oh. Because, and I couldn't have done all this back then because there was stuff I've learned since then. But uh, no, I thought, wow, this is the way, now, you know, perhaps in an appendix. Uh, that's what I'm doing with the, with the business cycle book is I'm trying to keep the, the math and the appendices for somebody, anybody who wants it, it's there. But I'll try to explain it without it otherwise. But no, I, I, I'm when I reread the chapter, I was really excited about it and uh, would like to uh, expand what I have in there. Interesting. Okay, and and this is just a very very simple question, which I think is I think it's true that all models have math behind them. Is that is that an accurate statement? Yeah. That, that, that well, there's logic, right? I mean, and so and all, all logic, all math is doing is formalizing it. Like like let's say for example, uh, if demand rises, then prices will go up. You put some math in, you can say how much, you know, or, or, or which variable, which variables are important to how much the price goes up. Okay. So both of them are expressions of, you know, I guess some underlying assumptions about the relationships. And then uh, here's a result of, of my thinking through of the way demand works. I'll bet when demand goes up, that drives prices up. Okay. Uh, yeah. But now let's write it down with some equations so that we can say, and by the way, this variable right here is really important to how much the price goes up or whatever. Mm. Okay. All right. Great. Um, great. That's everything. That, that, uh, oh, right. that was great. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, and I will see you in less than a month. Yeah. I'll, I, I can't tell you how excited I am for this. Can't I, tell I, you. This is the first time I've been to anything in person uh, since COVID. Really? Um, so we're getting in on Sunday. No, no, no. On Saturday, on Saturday, uh, we're flying into, uh, LaGuardia. By the way, the very first step I ever took in the United States of America was at Idlewild, which is huh. now JFK, of course. Huh. Um, so I'm coming back to the, to the, the place where I was an immigrant. Hmm. Melanie's never been to New York city. So huh. we're going to fly into LaGuardia on, on the Saturday of the, of that week. Uh, and then take a train up to um, as close as we can to uh, Annandale, and, and then you know get a car from there. Are you um, saying it, at? Are you saying on campus? Or are you apparently? Saying- yeah, they've they've got a room set up for us. Um, cool. And then I present on Monday, so I guess we have Sunday free. 
I present on Monday, and then we're, we're going back to New York City on, on the Tuesday. But there's some good sessions that day, so I want to hang around for that. And then we're just going to hang around New York City until uh, the following Saturday. I wish I could go to CBGB's, but it's gone. Uh, the, what, what is that? Uh, where the Ramones started, where uh. the Talking Heads started, where, where Blondie started, the Dead Boys, all these punk bands. Uh, but now it's like a Louis Vuitton store or something like that. So mm. anyway. But yeah, um, I, well, I, well, I'm glad you hear your wife is going to be, I am bringing my guitar. I'm, I'm, ah, <laughs> so, there you go. well, what day are you getting? Are you staying the whole week? I'm actually, you know, I'm actually like going Friday morning. I'm, I, you're not supposed to arrive until four o'clock, yeah. but I want to actually get there around lunchtime because I'm bringing my bicycle because ah. it is very important for me to get my head together because it, you know, the yeah. uh, big social situations are, are a bit of a challenge. Um, so yeah. I'm basically going to try and hit this head on where I'm going to, I'm going there. I'm going to get there around noon and then I'm just going to ride around the area just to, you know, just to do something. Right. Uh, maybe play guitar or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so you I'm know, going to be arriving on Friday and I'm going to be staying, obviously I'm staying the, the whole week. I'm not getting back. Oh to yeah. Oh, that'll be um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny you should say that about getting your head together. Cause I, I guess most academics are introverts and I'm okay to be extroverted, you know, for presenting a paper or something like that. But I, I noticed one time I, I hate questions. I was talking to, to Stephanie Kelton about this. Actually, I hate questions afterwards. Cause I'm done and I'm, I'm, I've already done my performance and now, and, and yeah, I guess it's an introverted talk. You know, there's a lot of, of stand up comedians and, and, and musicians that, that are very introverted. And so, but the performance is fine. You know, I, I, can I, go I, yeah. I, 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 I can't, you know, I, I, I very, very roughly, you know, kind of struggle socially and, 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 but I can get on stage and sing in front of a thousand people. No problem. Right. Right. Well, I can just bled it all out like that one particular venue. And um, so yeah. my job is is a one on one. You know, it's definitely not a career, a long term career, but I'm a one on one. I'm full time yeah. with a single student all day long, a 10th grader. And I, I got a master's in elementary education. And then I did my student teaching, which was basically a six month long nervous breakdown. Oh. And so so yeah. so yeah. like, you know, I you know, it, which is kind of a reflection of one on one. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. when a lot of different personalities come into play, it's just like, I can't process this. So right. but I'm very excited. Right. Right. Well, Stephanie is an extrovert because she said, Oh my God, I always tell my husband if there were no questions, I felt like I failed. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, nah, I'm on my way out then. Uh, uh-huh. So, but anyway, okay. I understand where you're coming from. All right. Well, John, it, it, it's been great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, hope your you grass so is, I hope your grass is mowed well. Oh, my, my boys are going to hope that it's mowed well. Otherwise, I'm going to be having to demonstrate my power as, as the allowance issuer. <laughs> right. There you go. There you go. Okay. All, All right. right. Well, we'll see you in a couple of weeks then. Thanks so much. Talk Bye. to you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. 
My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. As I mentioned, I do believe it takes a lot of shutting out of dissenting views and those that hold those dissenting views in order to enable this true belief. However, after thinking about it, I realize that filtering always occurs at the level above, starting with those who rank the economic journals and universities. Another important example relevant to my own experience are those who moderate extremely large social